Up in the morning and out to school The teacher is teaching the golden rule American history and practical man You study him hard and hoping to pass Working your fingers right down to the bone And the guy behind you won't leave you alone Ring, ring goes the bell Hello, everyone. My name is Leonie Hameson. Welcome to our show, Talk Out of School, on WBAI Radio 99.5 FM and WBAI.org, where we focus on issues affecting public schools here in New York City, the state level, and nationally. Our show is also available for download as a podcast. I am pre-taping today's show because I will be participating in the March for Our Lives for Gun Safety which starts at noon on Saturday in Cadman Plaza and then proceeds uh, to march over the Brooklyn Bridge. For listeners, you can join us as the march will quite likely still be going at 1 p.m. But this pre-taping has also allowed me to have as my special guests Naftuli Moster and Beatrice Weber of Yafed, who can't be on my show live on Saturday as Naftuli keeps the Sabbath. Yafed fights for the rights of Orthodox children to be provided with a quality secular education. And they had a big win this week in which the court found that New York State and New York City have violated state law along with the yeshiva that Beatrice Sons attends by not ensuring that Orthodox children receive their right to a quality secular education. But first some news. The last three weeks have featured emotional whiplash for me and other education advocates and parents. On May 14th, there was the horrific mass shooting in a supermarket in Buffalo, in which an 18-year-old with an automatic weapon killed 10 people and injured three more. And then on May 24th, only 10 days later, at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, another 18-year-old with an assault weapon killed 19 school children and two teachers, wounding 17 other people. The march to be held today is part of a nationwide effort to persuade the Congress and our elected leaders to wake up and finally do something to stem the gun violence that threatens us all, but especially our children. Then late on Friday, June 3rd, the New York State Legislature passed a new law that would require New York City to cap class sizes in all grades to much lower levels, to no more than 20 students per class in grades K through three, 23 students per class in fourth through eighth grades, and 25 students in high school academic classes, and to also cap phys ed and performing arts classes at 40 versus 50 in those particular classes now. These caps would be phased in over five years. This is legislation that Class Size Matters, as well as many other New York City parents, advocates, and teachers have been fighting for for so many years, and it finally happened. But then just this Monday, in the late afternoon, I got a private message on Twitter that the New York City Department of Education had released school budgets for next year, and they contained huge cuts, including as much as $8 million for Fort Hamilton High School in Brooklyn, $4 million for Forest Hills High School in Queens. I took a look at the link she supplied, and sure enough, these huge cuts were there as well as big amounts cut from almost every single public school in the city. Now that we knew that the mayor had proposed cutting 215 million from school budgets in his preliminary budget and his executive budgets that were released several months ago, 
And I had testified to the city council about this several times, urging them not to make these cuts, but to restore them. I also briefed parents about the proposed cuts many times, including last weekend at our parent action conference and about their likely negative impact on class size. I'll put a link to the brief video on the PowerPoint in the resources section of the podcast so you can take a look. But none of this had apparently the impact that seeing these massive cuts in black and white in their own schools had on parents and teachers. A furor erupted. There were news stories that these cuts were indeed a sticking point for the council speaker, Adrian Adams. As the Daily News article said just yesterday, Speaker Adams told everyone there is no deal until the administration makes a commitment to addressing the education cuts. So I breathed a big, big sigh of relief, and many of us did, that maybe these cuts were not inevitable and that would, they would not happen after all. But then this morning, Friday, uh, just a day later, there was an announcement that a budget deal had been reached between the council and the mayor, and we all watched the press conference eagerly online that the mayor and the speaker gave at City Hall a little bit after noon today. Speaker Adams thanked Mayor Adams profusely for his partnership and said that this budget was a big investment in our youth, our communities, and our city's future. Mayor Adams said that they agreed on so much more than they disagreed on. No mention was made of the cuts or their restoration in the long list of programs that they announced they were going to fund, almost none in education. Finally, a reporter asked about the $215 million in proposed budget cuts to our schools, and Mayor Adams confirmed that these cuts would go forward as planned, and then he gave a cockamamie excuse that if they had to lower class size in accordance to the new state law, they need to save money now. Though, of course, since this will cause class sizes to increase, it will just make it more expensive and difficult for him to achieve the smaller classes called for in the law in the future. I do want to encourage everyone who is listening to call the Governor Hochul as soon as possible and urge her to sign the state class size bill. Her phone number is 518-474-8390. That's 518-474-8390. I'll also uh, put a link to that phone number as well as the website in which you can send her a message in the resources section of the podcast and on WBAI. But now I'd like to bring on Neftuli Moser and Beatrice Weber of Yafed. Thanks to both of you for being with us today and to both of you, but especially Beatrice, congratulations on your big win in court this week. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. It's good to be here with you. So first, Neftulia, can you explain to our listeners your own family background and why you decided to start Yafet? Certainly. So I grew up in a huge Hasidic family. I grew up in Borough Park, which is a Hasidic section of Brooklyn, New York. I am the middle child of 17 kids. We belong to a Hasidic sect called Bells. Uh, it's headquartered in Jerusalem, but it has a big presence in other parts of the country, including in New York. And um, the way it works in the Hasidic community is um, that you attend, you tend to, usually you attend the yeshiva that belongs to your sect. So in the Hasidic community, there are about a dozen big sects and many other smaller sects. Each sect can consist of tens of thousands of families. And each sect has many of its own institutions specifically geared towards their own 
members. And uh, so that includes a boys' school, a girls' school, at least one of each. And then um, there's, there's, you know, high, high schools, there's, uh, you know, uh, synagogues, there are ritual baths and so forth. So it tends to be the case that if you are part of a specific sect, you go to the yeshiva of that sect. So growing up from when I was two and a half years old till I was really 20, I went to yeshivas belonging to the Belz Hasidic sect. And when I finished yeshiva, I had a unique um, desire, which is not common in my community. I had a unique desire to become a psychologist. The real reason behind it was I saw a lot of mental illness in my community and even in my own family that seemed to go undiagnosed and untreated. And I thought I would be good at it. So I began dabbling with this idea, but I had no concept of what it really entails. The only time we would hear the word college growing up was in a derogatory way. Um, <laughs> professors were also being like, oh, professors, like in a bad way. So, so I knew very little of college. It's not like in our yeshivas, we had like, you know, college prep or like an advisor who's trying to help us get into college. But I did sort of, you know, grasp some information from here and there that there's a school called Turo College and they have branches geared towards ultra-Orthodox Jews or at least Orthodox Jews. And um, I walked into a branch like that that was located in Borough Park, not too far from my home. And um, I basically proclaimed I wanted to become a psychologist. I didn't know the terminology like enrolling and registering and, you know, major, minor. So um and, and I quickly learned that I am not in the least prepared to enroll in college. I didn't have a high school diploma. I couldn't go for a GED because I, I couldn't really pass it any, you know, anytime soon. And um, that was sort of the beginning of this whole process when it first occurred to me that something really bad was, was done. But I managed to get into college. One way to get into... Oh, wait a second. Let's, let's rewind a little. You couldn't get a GED. You couldn't graduate from high school with a regular diploma, but you'd gone to school throughout your life, starting from probably age five on to the yeshiva. And what was, what was it about your education that made you unable to get a high school diploma or a GED? You haven't really explained that. <laughs> it's a good question. And I was going to get to it, but this is a good place <laughs> to do so. So, um, Yes, growing up in Hasidic yeshivas, especially, you know, in the one that I attended, but I know this is the, this is true for basically every Hasidic yeshiva that's out there. Um, boys in elementary and middle school tend to receive a maximum of 90 minutes of secular education a day. And really it only is relegated to an after school program. So you're not going to find a Hasidic yeshiva where let's say 9 a.m. between 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. where they teach any secular education. All of that is Judaic studies. In my yeshiva, only at 3.30 p.m. did we switch from Judaic studies to secular studies, and it went for, like I said, a maximum of 90 minutes. Younger grades, it was just an hour. The English consisted of the English studies. The secular studies consisted of basic English and arithmetic taught by uh, oftentimes yeshiva graduates who themselves didn't get a good education. Then once we entered high school, which, as you probably realize, uh, coincides with being bar mitzvah, um, we then got cut off completely from secular education. Instead, our school days got even longer. We started yeshiva for, at 6.30 a.m. It went till 8.30 or 9 p.m. So we're talking about a good 14 hours of yeshiva, but zero secular education. And by zero secular education, I mean zero English, zero math, zero science, zero social studies, literally none of that. And the rest of it was Judaic studies taught in Yiddish with the text being ancient Hebrew 
So needless to say, this explains why I came out of yeshiva completely ill-prepared. I didn't, I could barely speak English, let alone write English. Um, the, the school actually tried to get me in through writing a, a, an essay and doing a math exam um, as an entrance test. And I couldn't do either. I had never heard the word essay, let alone written one. So that was really the, the reasoning behind the tremendous struggle I had uh, enrolling in college. And you started Yafed what year? Oh, I started Yafed a few years later. For a long time, I was under the impression that, first of all, I had no basis of comparison to understand what did I miss out on? What is supposed to be taught? And I had no way of researching or even thinking of researching that non-public schools must comply with certain standards. In fact, anyone I would ask about it, they would say, oh, they're private schools. They could do whatever they want. And later it turned out that that was not the case. Uh, at some point, this was already in my senior year in college. Um, I was still struggling. I was taking basic intro to biology, which many kids probably took in high school even or earlier. And it was then that it occurred to me, you know what? I, I kept feeling in college, even though I was doing well, because I was working really hard, but I kept having this feeling where other students were building a building on top of a foundation. I was building a building on no foundation, or sometimes I was trying to sort of do both together, right? Learn stuff that I would have learned in elementary and middle school and simultaneously learn college level uh, material. And it was then that I decided, let me look into it a little bit. And I was just blown away when I discovered that New York State has a clear law that requires non-public schools to provide an education that is, quote, at least substantially equivalent to public schools, meaning they could be better or they could be the same, but they cannot be worse. And the law went on to, to describe and to list the subjects that must be taught in these schools. And the guidelines that followed also articulated what must be taught and I'm sitting there reading all of this, and I'm just shocked and blown away by the fact that clearly very little or none of this is being is happening in the yeshivas that I attended. And that really is what inspired me to start sort of talking about it and asking for meetings with um, education officials and eventually to start Yafet. So, Beatrice, now, can you tell us something about your own background and when you decided to file a lawsuit, not just against the yeshiva, which your son attends, but also against the state and the city as well? Yeah, so good to be here. So, first of all, I just wanted to clarify, yes, I am currently a parent ambassador for Yafet and have been so for the last few months, but I'm also here as a parent, you know, and, and filing the lawsuit came well before that. So I'm a mother of 10 children, six of them boys. And my youngest son, who's now nine, attends a Hasidic Yeshiva in Brooklyn, which has, you know, very similar um, curriculum as what Naftali just described. Uh, so I I'm very familiar with the Hasidic um, school systems. You know, my children have been attending, you know, my older children are in their high 20s already. So I, I, I know the system well, and it's similar to um, how Naftali described it. So I didn't grow up in a particular Hasidic sect, so we, but we sent to Hasidic um, yeshivas. And the, the decisions were not based on if the school's providing an education. You know, it just wasn't. There were other, it was like how, you know, how strict it was, how uh, it was based on a completely different, you know, list of criterias. Um, so as part of my um, divorce settlement, I had to, you know, it stated that I have to keep my children in the same or similar schools. And 
you know, I had gotten a college degree. Uh, I went to college in 2007. So as you know, after I had eight children, so as a, an adult and then continued on, started working on my MBA before my, my divorce and, you know, completed it afterwards. And they, you know, understanding more and more the important, the importance of education, you know, was an evolving process for me. Um, my daughter, I have a 15 year old daughter. I, um, switched her to a, still an ultra orthodox school, but one that provided a little bit more of an education in 2018. And I was hoping to be able to do the same with, with my, I was hoping to be, uh, to be, sorry, should I start that sentence? I was hoping to be able to do the same with my, with my son, but I ended up being in court in family court for like over a year with that. And my lawyer made it very clear to me that I should not dare try to do anything similar to that with my, with my son. Um, so I had no choice. My hands were tied, right? He's in, he's in this yeshiva. I can't switch him out. I can't even switch him out to another ultra Orthodox or Hasidic yeshiva that does give a little bit more. So I'm stuck here. And, you know, looking at my older sons who are in their twenties, um, I have some, some of my sons are, you know, Talmudic scholars and supported by their wives and their in-laws and that's their path in life. And, um, like they've been very well prepared for that path, but for my sons that have attempted to, to work right. And go outside, outside of the yeshiva walls, literally it's been so difficult. So it it almost felt like I had no choice. What was I going to do? Just sit by and just let things happen. So I knew about the work, you know, that Naftalene Yafid was doing. So I reached out. This was probably the summer of 2019. You know, I reached out and so what can we do about this? You know, uh, like how, how can we tackle this? And that's when they connected me with um, David Shapiro, um, the lawyer who represented me, who, you know, did a pro bono. Um, and we started the process. The first step, I believe, was a complaint to, to the school, right, to the yeshiva and the city, um, just letting them know that this was an issue, this was a problem. You know, I went out to the school. Again, I knew what the school teaches and doesn't teach. Like, it's not like I had to do, have to figure out. Like, I knew it. But I did go through the process of going down, asking them for a curriculum, asking them for a schedule. Like, you don't, we don't receive that right? It's, you don't receive a curriculum schedule. Just, it's just not part of what they do. They actually um, don't even do report cards. So as a parent, you have no idea. Do Do you ever meet with your son's teachers? Do you talk to them at all? So they don't have an official, um, let's call, you know, they don't have the official um, teachers meetings with the, with the um, English, what they call, they call them English teachers, just with the, with the morning teachers. So I tried to go in to see the actual teacher when I went, which was unusual because mothers don't go, but I did go to meet my sons and try to meet with the teacher, but they, you know, they, they said, no, I have to schedule at a different time. I ended up speaking to the principal, like they, the principal arranged for me to meet with him, but he was very not forthcoming on giving me any of this information. You know, the only thing he did was like, let me look at the textbooks, but he didn't, you know, in terms of what the schedule was, what the goals are, what the curriculum is. I mean, the truth is they don't have it. I don't think they were hiding it from me there. I mean, the, the, you know, the principal himself was, he said to me, I have two businesses. And I care very much about this. So that's why, you know, I come here. And and I do think it's important to note that the school I send my son to is considered um, in Williamsburg to be providing the best secular education, right? I think definitely you've probably heard that too. People heard about it. Can we rewind a little bit? I'm really curious about one thing that I read already and that you mentioned today, which was that your lawyer told you 
I guess it was your divorce lawyer, not to challenge the right of your ex-husband to send your son to this particular yeshiva, which does not comply with the law in terms of an adequate secular education. Can you explain why he said that? And is it true that the family court is biased somehow for the husband's wishes or for the, the uh, yeah, ultra-Orthodox yeah, community? Yeah. Or what's, the, so, what's the situation? Yeah, so that's a whole other complex conversation about what the relationship is, especially in Rockland County, where my family court trial was held, where judges are voted in and the Orthodox community does have a block vote. So I don't know if you want to have a full-blown conversation about that, because that is a whole other conversation. I will say, though it's been challenging for me in family court, I have always won custody, not once, but twice, three times, actually, won custody in family court. So... Uh, you know, is there a conversation that they may be biased? Yes. Uh, is it Can possible? I ask yes. now, Julie, is it similar in Brooklyn? Is it similar in Brooklyn if the, if, a, if a wife was getting a divorce from her husband and wanted to send and had custody and wanted to send uh, their child to a more adequate uh, school? Would the Brooklyn judges be more biased on the side of the husband and the Orthodox community or on the wife's wishes in that regard? So it's a complicated thing. I think it is actually true in both cases. I think Beatrice neglected to say, for instance, that she, uh, a judge once ordered her that she must keep Yom Kippur. She must observe the, the Jewish holiday, a fast day of Yom Kippur, or risk um, losing her um, her custody, right? And that was, in, yes. that was in Rockland, right? So the point is, it, it's across the board, they tend to uh, bend themselves backwards to respect or appease the uh, ultra observant side of the couple. So it doesn't, it's not always the husband, sometimes it's the wife. But in terms of Brooklyn, I will tell you, um, uh, there's a, another mother. It's not a secret because this has been reported. Her name is Shiny Weichman. And um, her judge explicitly um, said in his ruling on her custody that um, while it is true that his, her son is not receiving a basic secular education, um, he ordered the son to remain in the yeshiva that he was attending. Uh, it's a different yeshiva, uh, not the one that I attended. It's not the one where Beatrice's son is attending. It's a third yeshiva. And again, there are dozens of these yeshivas, so it's no surprise. Um, so, in fact, she ended up appealing that decision um, along with uh, another aspect of his decision. And um, she, the, the, she lost on appeal. Now, they're considering appealing that as well. But the point is, it's almost like judges are maybe not grasping the extent of the lack of secular education in these yeshivas. So I also, I also oh, go on, go on. Yeah, yeah, I wanted to jump in and emphasize a big part of the problem is that the state, you know, or the city has not proclaimed or taken a stand and said these schools are not compliant. So mm -hmm. it's not like you can come to a family court and say this school is not compliant. The, the family court judges are assuming that the schools are doing their job. If it's called a school, if it is a school, it's a school, period. They're, they're not ready to go into, and that's like, I think, besides for the religious bias. They're just not ready to go into evaluating the schools. And the truth is, it's not their job. It is the job. And I think the, the judge in my ruling made it very clear it's his job, right, to to make sure the agency is following their job. It's not that's not what the family court is supposed to do. They're not. What are they going to do? 
themselves figure out if the school is good or not. According okay. to them, it's it's a legal it's school. It's, it has it has everything they, they that the state considers right. The school they're receiving busing and they're receiving all kinds of a payment, you know, money for all kinds of different things. So from their perspective, it's a school. Period. So I think may I, the, the, may oh, I push may I push back <laughs> on that, Beatrice? The, during custody cases, a lot of issues come up whether a house is safe enough, whether a parent is 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 fit enough to parent. It's, in my opinion, it actually would be perfectly valid for the family court to evaluate whether the school the child is attending, especially if a serious concern arises that they're not meeting the minimum threshold of constituting the definition of a school. Essentially, the kid, it's what is being alleged there is that the kid is truant. If you have that come at a family court, and I do think that's a good place to, to argue that. I think, um, and I've heard from court, from judge, uh, lawyers, that yes, the judge should be able to weigh in on that. That being said, I also think any court should be able to weigh in on that. And that's why I think your judge in your case also did the right thing by saying this, this venue, meaning the Supreme Court of New York, was the right place for him to make that determination. Okay, and compel all right. So let that 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 that's that perfectly follows the next question I was going to ask. Naftuli, your press release says this particular victory that Beatrice had made legal history. Can you explain why? Of course, um, we don't know of another instance where a parent won this kind of case in New York State, where they allege that the kid is not receiving a substantially equivalent education. The state and the city were dragging their feet. Uh, by the way, this in itself, we need to pause and talk about the scandal. We'll get to that. Case. We'll okay. get to that okay. in a minute, okay? And ultimately, the judge said, you know, as much as he was reluctant to order an agency to do things his way, he gave them all the time they needed to come into compliance or whatever, to, to sort of p- produce their, their report and so forth. And finally, he had it, and he wrote, Three years is just too long to wait, right? Um, you should be able to investigate this sooner. So that part is is history. Uh, another thing is we don't know of any other case where the judge said you don't have to actually go through a exhaustive administrative um, remedies first, which means to first go to New York City and file a whole complaint and wait for them to investigate. Rather, um, Beatrice's lawyer's decision and Beatrice's decision to go straight to the commissioner, that he basically, the judge said this was fine because he disagreed with the way the state read the existing regulations and laws. And he said, nowhere does it say, does it prevent a parent from going straight to the commissioner? So he found that when the commissioner Rosa originally dismissed Beatrice's claim, and it took her two years to finally get to that, uh, he ruled that she was wrong. And I think that was uh, that was history as well. Yeah. This is Leigh Hameson, host of Talk Out of School on WBAI Radio 99.5 FM and WBAI.org. And I'm here with Naftuli Moster and Beatrice Weber about their big win in court and their efforts to ensure that all Orthodox children receive their right to a quality education. Now, first of all, what exactly did the court order, either of you, uh, if you want to say? Beatrice or Naftuli? I mean, they simply told the city and state, you need to come up, you need to finalize your investigation and have a report completed in four months. And the report would say whether the yeshiva that your son attends actually provides 
the, the secular education required by state law. Is that right? Yes. And now, Naftuli, you and the Yafed have gone through many struggles and steps over the years to try to get this New York law enforced that all children in the state, no matter what their religion and background, must be provided with an adequate equivalent secular education. Um, it's been a long struggle, but you have made some progress in the last year or so. Can you explain some of the delays you've encountered, but also some of the actual successes you've had in the last year? Sure. So we started, uh, I founded Yafit in 2012, um, but there was a lot of, uh, you know, kicking the can from the state to the city and back and forth for the first few years. In 2015, we filed a formal complaint with the New York City Department of Education. We named 39 yeshivas that 52 yeshiva graduates and parents signed and alleged were not providing a substantially equivalent education. This is in New York City alone. And uh, the city announced they were investigating, and then they began dragging their feet for a long time. At some point, the state said, it looks like this, the city and other local districts, as well as non-public schools, can use some clarification as to how to uh, provide a substantially equivalent and how the local school district should enforce a substantial equivalency. And that's when they embarked on their journey to um, release new regulations. Initially, they started off with guidelines that would spell out exactly what it means to be substantially equivalent and how the local school district can enforce it. They first released guidelines and they were struck down in court after the yeshivas and other private schools uh, got together and filed a lawsuit against it. Then the state released new regulations and the yeshivas together with the private school community all opposed it, arguing that it was going to be intrusive and all of that. And of course, yeshivas just didn't want to change their curriculum. And, and then COVID hit, so that got delayed. So more recently, the state released a new set of regulations in March, and it went out for public comment from uh, March 31st uh, till or March 30th till May 31st. So the public comment period just ended. And if these regulations go into effect, hopefully it provides for a much better blueprint on how schools must comply with the law and how the local school districts must enforce the law. So that was the recent, you know, one recent success, um, and hopefully. The Board of Regents votes on it, uh, you know, sometime in uh, September or, you know, soon after. And then, you know, came this win for Beatrice, which I think signals a larger win here because because the judge essentially told told the state and the city that three years to investigate these schools is too long. Now, that investigation that we sparked in 2015, that one is still ongoing, according to the city. And that's already seven years old. So if three years is too old, is too long for this judge, then clearly seven is even more. So we do hope that that sends a signal to the city that they must uh, quickly produce that those findings and uh, put out a remediation plan. So um, our previous mayor, Bill de Blasio, actually promised uh, a legislator to delay their inspections of yeshivas in exchange for extending mayoral control. Uh, what year was that? Can you remind us? That, I believe that happened in June of 2017. The report on that came out only two and a half years later in December of 2019. 
I just wanted to mention that because he is also now running for Congress, and I really do want our listeners to remember that he did that. Um, it's one of the reasons why we oppose mayoral control because it shouldn't be, our schools should not be subject to this sort of uh, secret deal making. But our new mayor, Eric Adams, has been even more closely affiliated with the ultra orthodox community in Brooklyn and has received significant political support from them. First of all, I wanted you to explain to our listeners, you or Beatrice, um, why is it that the ultra-Orthodox community seems to have so much political influence? And what happens if Eric Adams doesn't even pretend to provide the oversight and enforcement called for in the new law and the regulations? So uh, the, the ultra-Orthodox community it makes up a huge portion of the electorate in New York City and New York State. And they tend to rally around very specific issues, mostly issues that don't sort of matter or, or, you know, mean much to the rest of the public. And, and it becomes sort of like a single issue, uh, vote. So for instance, during the recent mayoral primaries, uh, uh there was a, a community leader, Hasidic community leader who told, I believe it was the New York Times, he said, the first 24 issues uh, of importance to us is yeshivas, yeshivas, yeshivas. Then as a distant 25th issue is something else, you know? So the point is they basically made this the, the sort of the single issue that they're all concerned about. And in, in primary elections where the turnout is not huge um, and you have one group that is super committed, they use a lot of fear mongering amongst their people and pressure for people to vote. Uh, for very specific candidate, um, and they cultivate these candidates and get and they get very concrete promises of what they're going to get in return, essentially for their votes. Then they manage to turn out a huge voting block, and and it's sort of this cycle because then you know other candidates look at that and they say, I too want to get a piece of that next time when I run, and and it even means that even people who are not currently running or that they're not running for mayor, they might be, um, you know, elected in a completely different district, but they do have their eye one day on a on a either citywide office or even statewide office, and they they think twice before they would um, anger the ultra orthodox community, right? So even people like that are often afraid of speaking out um, against, you know, uh, speaking out on this issue about the yeshivas not providing a basic education. So what happens if our mayor, Eric Adams, doesn't even pretend to provide the oversight and enforcement called for in the new law and the regulations? What's the next step? Well, first of all, there are a few remedies, but I will say I have bad news for your listeners if that were to happen, because the proposed regulations spell out a clear punishment for any district, and that includes New York City, where the uh, superintendent, in this case the chancellor, um, doesn't uh, enforce substantial equivalency. And that is that the state will or could withhold half of all their funding um, until they comply with the law. Uh, that's a half of all their funding, not just the non-public school funding. It's a bit of a nuclear option. In fact, in our public comment that Yafet submitted, we pointed out that this seems unreasonable. Why not start with something more concrete, reasonable, um, but targeted? Exactly. In fact, we suggested the state should come in 
and and conduct these reviews. They can deduct that amount of money, right? What it takes to conduct these reviews and in place of the city or the local school district. Um, in addition to that, of course, we could sue. That's for sure. We could have parents like Beatrice and others who could bring legal action against the city and frankly, any other district that doesn't enforce the law. And so um, do either of you have any indications that the state or the city will appeal this decision? Have you heard anything about that? Uh, we haven't heard anything, but I, I wouldn't be surprised, especially the fact that you can go straight to the state when you have a complaint about a school, right? And don't have to wait for the entire process. That's really going to change things. And though, again, this ruling is just, for my case, will have an impact on others. So it's going to be interesting to see how this all falls into place. But I guess the fact that I've been, you know, in family court for close to eight years, I always assume, you know, somebody will appeal or things will happen. So I think it remains to be seen. So it's also interesting, something you mentioned, that this could be a model for other parents to start suing in court. Do you have plans to encourage other dissatisfied uh, parents um, that might be out there to file their own lawsuits at this point? Or are you going to wait to see how this one shakes out? Without a doubt, um, Beatrice was actually one of several parents that we helped pair up with attorneys to file, um, to bring legal action. The idea being... We're not going to wait for the city to, uh, you know, set politics aside and produce a report and start remediating the problem. We're not going to wait on the state to, you know, get their act together and release another set of regulations and another and another. We're going to have to apply pressure from different places. It happens to be that Beatrice's case progressed um, quicker, and I think that was uh, a great thing. And it's ironic that we call it quick when it, when it took uh, close to three years but um, but we stand ready to support other parents and um, we have other sort of legal uh, strategies that we're working on. Um, but definitely we intend to help uh, parents, uh, yeshiva graduates um, who want to come forward. And I will also say that I'm not so sure, and I don't know, it's not that I have any specific information, but I'm not so sure that the city and the state will appeal it because ultimately it was the yeshiva that brought this upon themselves because what happened was the city was trying to conduct these uh, visits to the yeshiva and the state was patiently waiting for the city to finish their report so they can issue their report on what the city produces. And it was the yeshiva and their attorneys and, and their, you know, politically connected uh, leaders who were basically stonewalling. They were anytime a, a date was suggested to, to conduct a visit, they found a reason why that doesn't work and so forth. And, and that was ultimately what sort of, I think, pushed the judge to say, I've had enough. I'm giving you four months to complete this. And that includes a bonus month to New York City to finish their investigation. But regardless, by the end of four months, he needs to see a report from the state um, so that Beatrice can finally determine whether her son is getting a basic education or not. So that's part of the court order that, they, that the city and the state and the yeshiva are given four months to complete an objective report by the city as to the quality of the education and whether it meets state standards. Is that right? So four months from now, if that decision is not appealed, um, we should have a report on the school? I would say so. Correct. And then if, for whatever reason, the state or the city find that the school does not 
comply with the law, then what happens? I think we're going to find out, right? I don't think this has happened yet. So it's going to be very interesting. And again, this is always when you do, like, we didn't know what the ruling would be. We didn't know what the judge would say. Like, one of the things they were pushing was that this should be in family court, not in this court, right? So we didn't know what ruling we'd get. But I kept on saying, whatever happens, we'll be able to appeal, right? So I think that's going to give us more leverage. Like, what if the school isn't substantially equivalent, right? Then I have, if, if the city doesn't start implementing some changes, right, or if they take too long, then we have the opportunity to file another complaint with the, with the state saying, okay, we got this report, and then now nothing's happening. What if, what if they find that the school is substantially equivalent? And I will tell you it's not. But what if they do, right? We can mm-hmm. appeal that, that and say, you know, the investigation wasn't done properly. So I think, I think um, the point of all of this is that every step moves, moves this issue one step further ahead. But I don't think there's these quick and easy solutions. And, you know, my son is nine and a half already. <laughs> I think the years are going to pass before his school is actually going to give him an education. But I do think that wh- whichever direction it goes, it's progress. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, uh, you know, one final question for you both. What steps do you want listeners um, to take to support Yafed and to urge the state or the city not to appeal the case, but to step up their game in enforcing the law? I think that's such an important question. And um, and the truth is, because of this, is- the way this issue is sort of designed, it's very hard for the public to feel like they can do something about it. In fact, many people are just afraid of being accused of anti-Semitism, which unfortunately our opponents throw around like, you know, pieces of cake. Um, And that's a big concern, not just individuals, but elected officials are very concerned about being accused of that. Uh, Even reporters are are concerned about that. And I know at least one reporter who told me uh, they were scared off from doing any reporting on this issue because of that. So it makes it very difficult to do. But that being said, when done in a respectful and constructive way, it can be very effective when the general public tells their candidates, tells their elected officials that this is important to them. It's important to them because it's the moral thing. It's the right thing to do. And it's also important to them because it is their tax dollars that fund these yeshivas. That's something we haven't even discussed, that many of these yeshivas, two-thirds of their funding comes from government uh, programs. And that that's basically our tax dollars, right? So they have the right to speak up for any reason, because it's kids being denied an education, and it's because their tax dollars are paying for it. But the point I'm trying to make is as follows. The ultra-Orthodox community, as we discussed before, the leaders at least, they unite their followers around this issue, and they basically use that uh, political muscle and the black vote muscle to um, impose their um, will on these candidates and elected officials. There has to be a counter to that, where the general public says, you're going to lose my vote in exchange for that too, right? So for every vote you gain, you're also going to lose a vote on the other side, or maybe two, right? In which case, the calculus will change, and they will for once have to think about the children who are being denied an education rather than their votes. So is Yafet going to form your own pack? It's <laughs> <laughs> a good question. At the moment, we don't have such plans. Um, but uh, obviously, we do encourage the public to exercise their vote um, and their civic engagement 
in a way where it could benefit the tens of thousands of kids who are being denied an education? Somehow I think that, you know, there are a lot of Jewish people who feel passionately on the right side of this issue. I mean, as a Jew, that's the way, you know, I was shocked when I first found out that there was this whole community of people who didn't really believe in education because there's such a strong, uh, strong tradition of education in, in the Jewish culture and history. And so I was particularly outraged by this. Do you find that that's the case, that sometimes it's Jews themselves who are most upset about this and also most willing to speak out? I will say it is definitely true that they are more upset and more willing to speak out, but this should not imply that it's easy to get the broader Jewish community to speak out. You have to understand many of them have a soft spot for the ultra-Orthodox community, right? They look at them and they're like, oh, maybe that's like the authentic Jews. They also feel guilty because ultimately ultra-Orthodox Jews, because of the, they're so visible um, as ultra-Orthodox Jews, they do tend to be the the target of the most anti-Semitic attacks, right? So they're always afraid of of speaking out on these issues and God forbid sort of making them look bad and leading to the next anti-Semitic attack. And then there's also the the general um, sense that, you know, live and let live, which is ironic because the broader Jewish community, as you probably know, is one of the most, you know, active in any kind of social justice issue, right? They'll fly halfway around the world to take care of other kids who are being denied an education or or other girls who are being forced into, you know, marriages or whatever. Um, but here's an issue in their backyard, right? We're talking mm-hmm. about uh, miles away from where they live and they sort of don't want to see, don't want to get engaged. So yes, while it is true that it is, we definitely get more support over there, um, and that includes actually financial support, um, it's not an easy task actually. More recently, we've been making some progress during the public comment period, we got more than 150 Jewish leaders and rabbis to sign a letter, a public comment letter in support of oversight. That's new, um, so but it's a slow process. Well, I want to thank you, Naftuli and Beatrice, for your work advancing the educational rights of children and congratulate you on your victory in court. I will refer people to your website, and hopefully there you'll have more information about this victory and also what people can do to support you to make sure that um, sooner rather than later, the law is actually enforced and these kids actually, including Beatrice, um, gets the education that he deserves. Thank you again for being here today. Thank you so much for having us. Our show, Talk Out of School, is available as a podcast if you missed any part of the live version or want to listen to it again, or share it with a friend. If you hear it through Apple Podcasts, please leave a review. And also, please remember to contribute to WBAI to keep us going as one of the only non-commercial, purely membership-supported radio stations in New York City that doesn't run ads. Our radio transmitter is now located at Four Times Square, and it costs more than $17,000 a month. Every dollar counts. You can contribute to these expenses by going to towerfund.wbai.org and click to donate. You can also call our pledge line at 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. 
There is no other show on the air that focuses on the important issues and controversies affecting our public schools and our private schools in this city like Talk Out of School. So if you appreciate what we're doing, please donate to WBAI again by calling us at 212-209-2950 and make a pledge today. You can also donate online at WBAI.org. We'll be back soon with another episode of Talk Out of School. Until then, please be careful and be safe. And thanks so much for listening. Up in the morning and out to school. Teacher is teaching the golden rule. American history and practical math.